Church History Matters, Episode 7. Grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters. Welcome to another episode of Church History Matters. I'm Joseph Knowles. And I am your co-host, Ruben Rosales. All right, and... We're here today with another episode of, or installment, of Heroes and Heretics. Yay! <laughs> um, so who are we talking about today? We are talking about Joan of Arc. And actually, to start with, I guess we can talk about, well, is that really what we should call her? By the uh, the best information we have, she was probably born around the year 1412. And just as a preface, there are a lot of French names and place names in here. Um, and I will do my best on the pronunciation, but I didn't take French, so... Neither did I. So if we offend anybody with our uh, terrible French pronunciation, sorry about that in advance. So, and also, I mean, are you really going to change anyone's... Nobody's going to start calling her by her right name. Everybody's going to call her Joan of Arc. That's true. I mean, yeah. Um, but more... just so our listeners know, <laughs> so you're aware, <laughs> the more you know... Yes, exactly. better. So she's born in a French village of Domremy, I think is how you'd probably say that. And her French name was more like Jeanne. Um, but she came to be known as Joan because at the time there was no English equivalent or John. female version of John. Yeah. Um, so J O H N. Right. J O H N. Because that sounds almost exactly the same. John. J E A N N E, which you would probably look at and say Jeanne. Right. You know, if you're American. <laughs> yeah. And I had a long, a long time ago, I had a coworker who her name was spelled that way, but she went by Jeannie. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Dozen different names, the ways you could pronounce it, probably. Um, and sometimes you'll see it written out as G J A E N D apostrophe A R C. Yeah. So that's where of arc comes from. Right. But at the time in French, the apostrophe was not really used that way. So probably right. her father's name was just Dark. Yeah. And I think it's it, different. I think it would be do if it D U if it was like of mm-hmm. like that would be the proper way to signify. But again, we're no linguistic scholars here, so right. Just a little tidbit of information. Yeah. Um, but the real. Obviously, what everyone knows her for is, as a teenager, she um, claims that she begins to hear voices, um, and she identifies them as these various saints, and uh, including Michael the Archangel, different voices that she's hearing. But yeah. what they were telling her to do is the most significant part. They were telling her to go to the Dauphin, which I think, is, again, is how you pronounce that. But this is the son of the king, the heir to the French throne. That looks like Dauphin to me, bro. It does look like <laughs> Dauphin. <laughs> but whatever. So he's the the Dauphin. Um, he would later become King Charles the Seventh of France, um, and she believed the voices were telling her that she was going to be at the head of an army and drive the English out of France. Well, what's going on at the time? This yeah, is... yeah. Let's cover that first because this is kind of a lot of information really quick. And and I, to everybody that's listening, this is going to be a lot of information. You may have to go back and listen to it twice because there's just we had a lot of material we want to try to cover, and God willing, we'll get through all of it. Uh, but can we say whether or not she's a hero or a heretic yet? Um, I I don't know. Let's leave the verdict for the end. Okay, okay, let's go. But I I think probably most people will figure out where we're going. Um, well, I think there's almost definitely a divide. There's definitely a line of demarcation with, with regards to this topic. So we want to go ahead and let everybody know about that right off the bat as well. Right. All right. So, uh, what's going on in the year 1412 when she's born and when she's a teenager? It's 1420s. So at this time, it's smack dab in the middle of the Hundred Years' War. So there's a war that France and England were fighting from roughly 1337 to 1453, or the conventional dates. Um, and the dispute was really over who was going to be the ruler of France. So you had this treaty 
that tried to disinherit the son of the French king and pass inheritance to the heirs of the king of England. Obviously, that's a big deal. But at the time, the English king had lands that he controlled in France. So the other thing that's going on alongside the war between England and France is almost a civil war within mm. France itself. You've got those who were supporting the guy who would eventually be Charles VII and the Burgundians um, who took up with England against Charles VII. So, so you mean the French used to actually fight? Apparently. That's no, impressive. <laughs> well, here they're fighting each other. <laughs> well, that's, that's not so good, but yeah. Okay, well, that's good. That's actually interesting. It just kind of came into my mind that they used to be quite a fighting people. Right. They're known pretty much for their peacefulness now. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. Um, so Joan uh, meets the Dauphin in March of 1429, so again, in the middle of this war, and she tells him, I'm supposed to go to the city of Orléans. It looked like Orleans to us. Um, That'd be the old Orleans. Well, the old, <laughs> as opposed to the new Orleans. Not the new one, the old one. Yeah. Um, but she's supposed to go there. The city had been under siege. And she tells him, I'm the one who's going to break the siege and drive the English out of there. Yeah. Um, They've been under siege for about six months at that point. So he goes along with it. Apparently, she uh, has supposed to have told him some things at a private conference that only... Nobody else could have known. Right, right. So there's a couple of other things. Like she, like when she was younger, she used to dance. There were, there were, there were reports. Now I got this information from Catholic Answers, which mm -hmm. is a predominantly apologetic Catholic apologetics right. uh, website. So anything that's on there, these guys have done their homework. It's pretty reliable information as to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and believes. And they were saying that there were reports that she was dancing around this what was known as the fairy tree. Right. Right. And that was where she began to sort of hear. She was like, they actually tried to prove to people during her 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 uh, trial that that was all. That's all that was. It was nothing more. It was just simple. Uh, it was just a tree. It was nothing mystical about it. But she used to dance around this tree. And that after she got older, she was like twelve or thirteen. She, she was like, she stopped going there because she started having these voices right. uh, come start speak to her. And so anyhow, at first, she wasn't even, they laughed at her. Mm -hmm. Like, go home and, uh, like, have her, give her a good whooping. Don't right. listen to her. And then she goes and she speaks to the, the Charles? Yeah, Charles. She finally speaks to Charles. And apparently, he disguised himself. Right. To try to, like, throw her off her game mm -hmm. to see, like, oh, is this girl legit? And so when she came... She immediately saluted him and recognized who he was and then went and told, spoke to him privately. That's what gained her the audience right. to have the chance to speak to him one-on-one. -on -one. And that's when she was able to supposedly tell him some mysterious information. Right. Yeah. So he he buys into it, at least to a certain extent, mm -hmm. and says, all right, head out there and, and see what you can do. Yeah. She arrives at the city nine days after she gets there. She leads forces out of the city. They break the siege. <laughs> They drive the English back, um, and they actually follow up on that victory. She's with the, uh, the French forces again at the Battle of Pate. Um, they allowed the, the French uh, forces under Charles VII to retake much of the territory around Paris. Mm. And eventually, uh, just a few months later, this leads to Charles being crowned king in Reims in July of 1429. And the, I, I just figured something out. If the English had had John MacArthur to tell her to go home, None of this would have happened. <laughs> I'm just kidding, everyone. Mostly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, continue. So, yeah, we should speak on that a little bit. This is pretty outrageous. Oh, absolutely. I'm talking about a teenage girl. Right. Leading warrior men. Right. Into battle. That's unheard of. 
Yeah. That, that's never been seen before. Right. No, absolutely not. So that's why the, there's almost a mythology that grows up around her. But she get, this is where they take the nickname. Um, she's been called the Maid of Orléans. Right. And even at the time, that's what she a lot of people called her or referred to her just as the Maid. Yeah. Um, because she was this young teenage girl. The war is continuing, but most of the time campaigns did not take place in the winter. So mm. uh, Joan doesn't have much to do in the winter of 1429 and 1430. Um, so what does she do instead? Well, what every you know teenage person does when they're bored, they get on the internet and start <laughs> writing stuff. Yeah. Start talking junk. And right. But there was no internet. She didn't have an internet. She had letters. And so she wrote letters to a specific group of people known as the Hussites. Right. And who were the Hussites? Well, these were the followers of John Huss. Kind of important people. Jan Hus, if you want the... future installment of Heroes and Heretics on that gentleman. Yeah. So he was (laughs) pointing out problems with the Roman Catholic Church at the time when it was burned at the stake. And is reputed to have said, you may kill this goose. Cook this goose. Cook this goose. But a hundred years from now, uh, God will raise up a a swan, I think. So it was almost a hundred... It was very close to exactly a hundred years later. It was 102 comes years, Martin Luther. Yeah. yeah, so very important. But what does she say? Um, she's not for the Hussites. Oh, no. She's got some pretty, again, I mean, almost like the keyboard warriors of today. She's very, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. she really was brave. I got to right. give her that. She truly was brave. She actually went out into battle and, and saw some probably pretty horrific things. Mm-hmm. So today's keyboard warriors don't even no. hold a candle to uh, Joan of Arc. No. So. But she says, by the sword, if I can't do it any other way, I will eliminate your false and vile superstition and relieve you of either your heresy or your life. And, and she probably she probably uh, meant it and thought she would she would do it if she, she had, had to. She has more gall and conviction mm-hmm. than most of today's pastors. Oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah. seriously, she it for whatever she was wrong about, at least she had the conviction to stand upon right. what she believed. She mm. said, look, what you're doing is wrong, mm-hmm. and I'm going to, to make it known, and I'm going to confront you about it. Man, I wish I had a friend like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I got plenty of friends like that. But uh, that's that's amazing. Most, most oh, folks yeah. are not willing to even take a stand. Oh, well, we can't really say one way or the other. And, of course, we know I'm not one to back down from yeah. being well I make mistakes sometimes I made a couple of mistakes I misquoted some things on on our last uh, recording with our joint uh, podcast that we did with uh, Aquila and Priscilla mm. yeah I misspoke a couple of things and I apologize for that I'll try to make note of it in the show notes later but yeah uh, I, I I applaud her for having the you know conviction right at 13 yeah at very very young age um so maybe more like uh, probably about 18, 19 at this point. It's very yeah, heroic behavior. Um, so this takes us up to the spring of 1430. Um, there's another siege at City. Uh, Champagne. Right, uh, close. <laughs> I think it's something like Compiègne. Yeah. I don't know. Um, again, this is, I'm not French, but they're under siege by the English and their uh, Burgundian allies. That was the spell, uh, spelling I saw of it was Champagne, but I'm sure it's, yeah, you're right. It's probably pronounced differently. Right. Um, so she's... Uh, I did it once. I'll do it again. So she mm-hmm. heads out there to the city. Um, again, she leads an attack out of the city, but um, the attack fails. They close the gates. She gets trapped outside and captured by one of the French Burgundian nobles, mm. who then turns her over to English because that by this time she has become a very important political yeah. figure who's rallied support behind Charles the Seventh 
and given the French new hope that, hey, we can win this war. So she gets turned over to the English, uh, put in prison, a couple different prisons, and eventually they're going to try her for... Harrison. Did we talk about? Did we get that down here about how she was she was required? I guess the rule. There were a lot of things that went mm. went awry with that trial. Oh yeah, right? and the, just from the conditions that she was. And again, of course, I'm looking at all of the material from the Roman Catholic perspective. Mm-hmm. And while I'm not Roman Catholic anymore, uh, it's definitely I remember hearing a lot of different things about it. So yeah, let's talk about her trial for heresy. Right. So who I, who was trying her and why? Right. Well, it's the English. And they're trying her for heresy, technically, but it becomes pretty clear very early on that the trial is They want political. to remove, right, absolutely. They want to remove the, the political hero of the French who are mm-hmm. kind of feeling empowered by this little girl. Right. So that's what they're, they're set out to do. Um, and you can see that it, it, what their motivations are because there were certain church, uh, procedures for these uh, ecclesiastical courts that had to be right. followed. That's right. One was, if you're trying someone who was a woman, they had to be held guarded by women in a separate prison. In well, church. In a church in prison. In a church prison. Yeah. The English didn't do that. She was put in the castle tower, um, the castle at the town there. Uh, guarded Rouen. by English soldiers. Right. And if you uh, follow us on Instagram, I threw up a picture there as a hint. Ah, yeah. That was a drawing of the castle at Rouen. Um, and she, the tower where she was supposedly held is still there to this day. That's cool. pretty much all that remains of the castle, I think, but that's where she was held. But while she was there, and this became an issue in her trial, when she would go out to battle, obviously she would dress as a soldier right. with armor and things She was like cross-dressing. That. Right. So that became one of the charges. But while she was held in the tower, guarded by English soldiers, she stayed in those yeah. clothes basically to avoid being assaulted because she could take her boots and the different clothes that she had in time together right. to prevent her clothes from being ripped off. Uh, not to get too graphic, but... Well, actually, funny, uh, another little fun fact I discovered in my own research was people used to think she was weird because she would always sleep with her clothes on. Mm-hmm. She would go play around with the kids and then come back home and she would never, like, put sleeping clothes on. Huh. Like, it was, Or, you know, she wouldn't undress. I think a lot of times it was just they would undress and, right. Uh, take off their clothes from the day. She wore her clothes into bed. Huh. And the people had always thought that was weird. At least that was one of the things that got brought up in the trial. I don't know if this was the second trial or mm-hmm. first one. Anyhow. That's interesting. So you have a trial. Normally in the second one because only she was called for this one. Right. Yeah. And that was the next thing I was going to say is this another highly irregular thing is there only right. one witness called in the trial and it was Joan herself. And you can find all these. It's actually for something that happened in the 15th century. The trial transcripts are remarkably well-preserved yeah. and well-documented. So it's probably the best documented trial of the Middle Ages by that's far. That's pretty impressive, yeah. Yeah. But they, it, if you read through it, it, it's pretty apparent that what they're trying to do is get her to incriminate herself. Mm-hmm. They're trying to ask her questions, trip her up, confuse her, and hope that she'll say something that they can say, oh, look, there, she just committed heresy. She admitted to it. Right. Um, there's no... Um, United States Constitution, Fifth yeah. Amendment, right to not testify against yourself. So this is kind of what she was stuck with. One of the most interesting things and probably the most famous um, exchange between the judges and Joan was where they basically tried to set up a, a trap for her by asking her the question, do you know if you're in the grace of God? So asking her to say, do you know if you actually have salvation? Um, and her answer was, if I am not, may God place me there. If I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest in all the world if I knew that I were not in the grace of God. Right. So 
this is also important to cover, <clears throat> and I think this is an adequate or proper place to discuss it, is Joan never learned how to read. Mm. Never. Like, from the time she was little um, to, obviously, she wasn't that old when she was killed, but she never learned how to mm. read. And so she didn't have the benefit that most of us today do of being able to pick up scripture and read it. Mm-hmm. All and, and they say she was a very devout Roman Catholic. She went to mass uh, religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not just trying to, uh, you know, yeah, she made it a, a very good habit of hers to, to, to be at the mass. And while she was there, she was diligently praying. People, that was one of the things that people said about her. She was a, she seemed to always be in, you know, caught up in being prayerful. So that kind of answer, it's a pretty good answer. Right. Um, and one that would lead you to think, you know, here's a woman who knows the Lord. Right. And you see, I mean, again, you can go and read the transcripts for yourself. They ask that question. She gives that answer. And then they just kind of move on mm. um, because she totally sidestepped uh, their trap. And we can come back to exactly why that was a trap. Because right. that's how we're going to connect it to why yeah. it matters for today. Um, but, the, of course, the end result of the uh, trial is um, they get to the end there. And she eventually signs this abjuration, which says, well, I recant of all the stuff that I said. I didn't really hear the voices and this kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and then she recanted her recantation, supposedly, at which point they, they said, well, you were a heretic and you recanted your heresy, but then you went back to it. So now uh-huh. we have to execute you. And that's kind of the thing is heresy. You could recant. But if you return to it, that's when you got burned yeah. to the state, which yeah. is exactly what happened uh, with her. This is 1431. She's 19 years old and, and goes to her death. Um, again, a highly political, uh, corrupt trial process that even at the time, some of the people who were involved with it said, there are some, there are some problems here and this is not going to look good. Yeah. But that's not really the end of the story for Joan of Arc because she's still famous today. About uh, 20, 25 years later, yep. um, her mother and her family throughout that whole time have been trying to exonerate her and say, look, she was she was not a heretic. Um, she was wrongfully executed. Yeah. And this needs to be fixed. So Pope Calixtus III yeah. um, of the famous uh, Borgia family there in Italy, which were notoriously corrupt, um, but he actually had, I guess, the political will. To make this thing happen. So um, he gets this petition. They go to this this appeal, appellate process, basically, um, in which she is eventually exonerated. Here's what um, the, uh, writer Alan, Alan Williamson uh, wrote about it. He says, unlike the thoroughly partisan nature of the original tribunal in 1431, whose members had been selected by the English government from their own supporters, the appeal involved a broader range of clergy, including a number of Italians, an inquisitor from Vienna, and clergymen who had been associated with both sides during the war. The appeal also involved a larger number of high-ranking clergy, including eight bishops, an archbishop, a cardinal, and five inquisitors. So um, not the um, English political appointees that are going to hear the, the appellate trial. Right, so this is mostly Roman Catholic. Right. Within the uh, magisterium, I guess. Right. Um, and they totally undo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they couldn't be more clear. They say um, in their verdict, we state and pronounce, decree and declare the aforesaid trial and sentence being filled with fraud, false charges, injustice, contradiction, and manifest errors concerning both fact and law together 
with the aforementioned abjuration, execution, and all that resulted to have been, to be, and will be null, without effect, void, and of no consequence. So it's a very long and wordy saying of way of saying basically that absolutely everything that they did is it almost reminds me it almost <laughs> reminds me of um the roman catholic view of uh marriage right they they're they have a very interesting position on marriage so they're essentially hold to the permanence view with the exception of they give themselves the out of having the nullification mm, right in which case it's like an etch a sketch shake it ah it never happen. never existed <laughs> uh and that and that's it and then boom you're right. free to get married right so Essentially, that's what they did here. Mm -hmm. They said, look, uh, none of that counted. And and essentially, in this time frame, the Roman Catholic Church, now, I don't believe this, but I feel like there's enough evidence to believe mm -hmm. that they thought or and believed that they were essentially God. Mm. And God's, uh, God, God, true God, the true God in heaven's rightful representative, judge, jury, and executioner. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's, so that's why they had the authority to do this. Right. That's why, I, and I don't know, I don't remember off the top of my head when that term came into common usage, but the Pope is referred to as the vicar of Christ on earth. Right. So, yeah. There, what does that mean, vicar? What is a vicar, um, oh, now I'm going to have a great definition. Gotcha. No. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> no, so in essence, what they say in the vicar is they're saying they're, he is the physical embodiment and representation of mm -hmm. Christ. Right. Which is just like even under, that is right. heresy. <laughs> yeah. No. That is uh, impossible. No, just stop it. Right. Right. So anytime you most likely speak to a Protestant scholar, they will almost always certainly tell you that the 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 position and authority of the Pope is is blasphemous mm -hmm. because it is right. They, it, when you look get down to it, and they say that he is the physical embodiment and representation of Christ, the head of the Church mm -hmm. on earth. I don't know. I don't know what any other right. way to interpret that. Yeah. So when you see like uh, the, the Westminster Confession yes. say that <laughs> Pope is that Antichrist. Yeah. That's how they got there. Yeah. Um, well, the newer one doesn't say that. The newer, right. the modified version. <laughs> the update. Yeah, the update that they made. They didn't update it properly because if they did, they'd have went to the 1689. Right. There but, you go. <laughs> yeah. We love uh, you, Presby's We do. <laughs> anyways, moving on. Um, Maybe the most significant effect of the appellate trial, because she's already been executed, but what it did was basically to say, or effectively to say, because it was a trial that was instigated by um, secular authorities taking the name of the church for themselves, and they executed an innocent person, then her death was deemed a martyrdom. So she's now a martyr of the church. So you had kind of this cult of personality that, that grew up around her over the next several hundred years. And what it results in is actually a hundred years ago this year, uh, on May 16th, 1920, Joan was made a saint of the Roman Catholic Church by um, the Pope at the time, Benedict XV. So that's, about that? that's her the current 16th. status. Yeah. Yeah. And so should we talk about that? What's required for the canonization of a, of a saint? Mm -hmm. So just from my memory... There are a couple of things required in order for someone to be recognized as a saint. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of steps in the way as well. So right. first they have to be acknowledged as venerable. Right. Right. Meaning they are considered worthy of the highest respect. Mm -hmm. Right. That, and the Roman Catholic Church goes to great lengths to try to differentiate between veneration and worship. Right. Right. And we can get into a whole different topic with regards to the Virgin Mary and how they view that. Mm-hmm. First, it has to be shown that they lived a perfect or essentially perfect and, and godly life characterized by uh, godly living 
And that is, of course, looked at by the study of their life. Mm -hmm. Then once they get to that, say, yes, this person is worthy of veneration and respect. Then they say, okay, how do we know that this person's a saint? Roman Catholics believe in praying to saints. Mm -hmm. Now, I've made this, I I defended this when I was a Roman Catholic saying, oh, well, prayer is just communication. Mm. That's all that is. It's not worship. Prayer is just communication and, and it's perfectly okay because saints, the Roman Catholics believe, are in the presence of the Lord right this very second. Everyone else has to go through purgatory. Mm. They have to go through the cleansing. Right. Because unless you have died in a perfect state of grace, you have to go to purgatory. Mm-hmm. So how does someone end up in a perfect state of grace? Well, it's very simple. You have to go to the Roman Catholic priest. You have to confess your sins and then... Don't commit any mortal sins, meaning a sin that you know is a sin and willfully doing it. Right. So that's where they make the difference. A distinction of saying what's a mortal sin. You knowingly knew it was a sin and chose to do it anyway Mm -hmm. versus a venial sin. Like, oh, whoops, I slammed on my brakes and let a curse word slip out. Right. And by all accounts, yeah. And by all accounts, Joan of Arc would have met that standard. Absolutely. Yeah. And she was very, like you said before, very religious about going to mass. Absolutely. uh, Going to confession. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and was regarded as virtuous even by her English opponents. Yeah. They didn't really have accusations to lay against her that she was anything other than the maid right. of Orléans with all that that entails. Right. So then they have to, people have to have shown, look, I prayed to Saint Joan and she heard my prayer. And because and the evidence that she heard my prayer was that the prayer that I prayed was answered. Mm-hmm. And so that's proof that, hey, I can talk to a saint and the saint spoke, interceded for me to God, the father in heaven, to Christ, because they're they're behold uh, before the Lord. And so that's that's the language that they use. That's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, that that's why it's permissible to pray to saints, because saints are in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Right. The second. Right. Which still is just ridiculous. Why don't I just go straight to Christ myself? Right. right. Which is what I have the privilege to do mm-hmm. because the veil is tore. There's no more separation for us. We can go into the throne room of grace and we can pray to God directly. Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, but so, yeah, so that's part of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, has taught for a very long time and they still hold to today. That's why uh, I think John Paul is the one that they're trying to get canonized and recognized I as a saint. I believe so, yes. John Paul II, mm-hmm. who was a, I mean... Well, everything that I remember was a, he was much better Pope than the one we have now. At least he was Roman Catholic. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, that's the whole process. Uh, and it was, a, it is a long process. Mm-hmm. So you figure 1400s, when was she exonerated? What, uh, 25 years later? Right. And then just through uh, a couple hundred years, you know, a few hundred years. Mm-hmm. And then she was recognized as being a saint. So once, so a miracle has to have been proven to right. happen by the prayer and intercession of that specific saint. Mm-hmm. And then uh, her, her life has to be studied, all of those things. So all of that happened. The Roman Catholic Church said, look, we looked at this person. We looked at their life. We recognized that someone was praying specifically to this person. And it's almost like a deification, mm, right. which is another dangerous thing to do. Yeah, I mean, we fall prey to it in, in, in today in our life with the celebrity pastor, yeah, celebrity speakers. Mm-hmm. you know, And it's one of the reasons why I'm very... And I know I'm going to catch some flack for this because I definitely took some pictures with some some brothers in Christ mm-hmm. at the G3 conference. I'm not usually one to say, yeah, let's go take a picture because I worry about the sinfulness of man in those brothers mm-hmm. that they could become puffed up. I don't, right. I'm not saying they do. I'm right. just saying I'm concerned for that. Right. And I don't want to be a party of that. I don't want to yeah. be, that would be a sin against me mm-hmm. to play into that if they do fall prey to that sin of being right. puffed up. I just took on a different forum in, in my upbringing where in the, the independent fundamental Baptist world where, 
you'd have you'd have you'd go up and you'd have the the preacher sign your Bible oh, afterwards, <laughs> which which I think is probably a little bit worse than taking a picture with somebody at the yeah. Shakespeare conference. Oh gosh, um, I can only ever remember doing that myself once. Oh really? And, Who was it? Ah, uh, oh my goodness, I don't even remember. It was it was on a, a, a like the junior high retreat or something. Oh wow. Um, so I, you I heard probably, some sermon and was like, oh, that was a great sermon. Hey, we signed my Bible. Yeah, yeah. It was just. You're going places. <laughs> right. It was just like, it was like the, the thing to do. I don't right. I don't know how I got it started or anything like that. Um, but anyway, um, to your point, yeah, there's various kinds of that. The same thing in Protestant circles. We just, we uh, dress it up a little bit differently. But at root, yeah, it's really the same sin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we're all saints. We're all sinful. And I think actually it was. One of our brothers, we met Doug Wilson. Praise God for Doug Wilson. There's a lot of misinformation and confusion surrounding uh, Pastor Doug Wilson. And I can't speak to everything, you know, but look, here's what I do know. I know he's a sinful man. Mm-hmm. And we met him and we prayed for him. Everyone that you see me in a picture with, that I took a picture with, I prayed for that person mm-hmm. individually because I felt that's the one thing they need more. Yeah. I don't I don't want to picture. I'd like to get a picture. And actually, there's one person I didn't want a picture with. And they were like, my brother came and was like, hey, come on, let's get a picture. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. I'll take a picture. Um, but I prayed for him. And when we saw Doug Wilson, he was like, oh, I just want to say you're awesome for this thing. And she was like, no, he's not. You're not awesome. And I told, I told Doug, I was like, you're not awesome, but you're, you're a sinner. But we love you anyways. Right. And we want to pray for you. Yeah, that's um, good. But anyhow, let's continue on back before back we... Back to Joan of Arc. Yes, back to Joan of Arc. What's, so what's what? the big deal? So what? Yeah, what, what's the important thing? Right. So we're talking about a French peasant girl who didn't even know how to read from 600 years ago and a Catholic heresy trial. Yeah. And what in the world does it have to do with, especially, I gather most of our listeners are probably in the Reformed circles. Ish. Reformed-ish. Reformed-ish circles. What is that? What can we learn from that? Well, no else, none of the Armenians choose their, use their free will to listen to this. Probably not. <laughs> we scared them all We love away. you still. We love you. Please listen. It's important. Absolutely. Church history matters, and this is why church history matters. Right. So um, I think two big takeaways for me, um, and the most obvious one has to do with why did Joan of Arc become a figure anyway, Yeah. and it was her hearing the voices, the, the prophecies that she is supposed to have been hearing so at the time either at the original trial or at the time of the appeal the church position was that joan's revelations could have been from god there was nothing in catholic doctrine that would say no that prophet is prophecy doesn't work that way anymore and i'm pulling from uh the catholic encyclopedia here they define prophecy as quote the gift of knowing and being able to manifest things hidden from the ordinary knowledge of man so with the example with Joan going in mm. and recognizing, apparently recognizing Charles II and then supposedly telling him things that nobody else could have known, that's the kind of thing that they're talking about. The other thing right. that they say about prophecy is that in the course of time, prophecy became less common without, however, ever disappearing altogether. Yeah. So at both trials, it wasn't a question of, look, you can't have been prophecy directly from God because God doesn't do that anymore. Right. Anything to say on there? Uh, there's there's a lot there. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, and I, again, we don't want to misrepresent. We, we, we're trying to give you all of the information from Roman Catholic Church uh, approved uh, sites and uh, citations. But uh, from what I remember of growing up, it was one of those things where uh, they definitely put an emphasis. And depending on what, and here's the other thing I've learned uh, growing up Catholic. The, church, the information varies from church mm, to mm-hmm. church. 
Right. There was something that would be accepted in one church that would be very much not accepted in another church. Mm-hmm. And it's very dependent upon the, the pastor of that local diocese, uh, church within a specific diocese. And uh, they also are, as as the Roman Catholic Church at large, it might be something very big in a local church. They might say, oh, this person has a gift of prophecy. They, they, they can interpret dreams or they can do this. Uh, that would be something very local. But once it got bigger and people began to hear about it, the, the Roman Catholic Church at large would go in and take a look at it and mm-hmm. to investigate it very heavily before they say, yes, okay, we, right. we agree. We think this is from God. They're like modified cessationists or very, very stringent right. uh, in their acknowledgement. But still, I think they're, I, yeah. you know. And I think weird. a lot of it, it, it comes down to uh, misconceptions about the biblical idea of prophecy. And I read right. a book uh, a couple of months ago, or m- last month, I guess, a uh, book by O. Palmer Robertson. It's just called The Final Word. We'll get the subtitle here. Subtitle I think John is, MacArthur has a similar book, I think by the exact same title. Right. Uh, the Final Word, A Biblical Response to the Case for Tongues and Prophecy Today. It's put out by yeah. Banner of Truth. Um, it's a short, succinct it. book, but it's packed. It's just absolutely packed with very meaty and, I mean, less than 150 pages. And it's a small size book, too. But we do have, a, I guess, just wrong thinking about what prophecy is. Here's how he defines it. He says, Uh, Prophecy should not be defined essentially as a foretelling of the future. Instead, it is the forthtelling of a revelation from God, which on occasion also may involve the prediction of future events. That's good. So that's the definition he sets out at the front, and he walks through scripture passages to defend very capably, and I think very convincingly defend that definition of prophecy. Um, So according to him... And again, I think he makes a very convincing case. Prophecy isn't this mystical mumbo jumbo thing that a lot of people kind of have think of it, even though they they might not use the word mystical. Right. That's the kind of thinking that I think uh, pervades a lot of areas in the church. So if I were to actually, and I think I don't say if I were, I actually, when we talk to my kids about it, because we've discussed it, we talk about prophecy a lot as we Mm -hmm. do family worship. We go through because it it appears in the Bible a lot. Right. Um, I tell them, look, here's here's how I break it down. It is. The word of God spoken by man, mm-hmm. which sometimes entails future events. Right. So it's not always just, oh, I can tell the future. Right. And, but I think it's kind of what it is accepted as today. Right. It's like, oh, you can prophesy. You you can tell the future. No. Right. It's speaking the word of God. Mm-hmm. Right. And I showed my daughters uh, the shocking youth message by Paul Washer. That was okay. a very <laughs> an, excerpt, an excerpt of it. Uh, we didn't we didn't go through it all because uh, we were doing family worship. So we just like here's the excerpt of it. But he said it. He said it in that message. You mm-hmm. look and listen back. He's like, if I am interpreting this text correctly, that's the qualifier. If I'm interpreting this text correctly, it is as though God were speaking through a man, mm-hmm. and that is prophecy. Right. So in in a, in a very real sense, when you go to a local church and you are part of a local church and you hear the pastor preaching, that is the word of God mm-hmm. for his people. It's not mystical. It's not right. this it's not this uh hocus pocus kind of thing right. like if I do this and if I do this and I can hear the word of God, I'm opening myself up to receive a message, which is what you see in Jesus calling. You you see it in a mm-hmm. lot of evangelical unfortunately, a lot of evangelical circles where they can find tools mm-hmm. to hear and interpret God's right. word or his revelation. Mm-hmm. That's an absolute lie. Right. It's so, almost like we've taken the Professor Trelawney character from yeah. the Harry Potter yeah. novels, reading the tea leaves, we kind of baptized it. Oh, yeah. And that's our idea of prophecy. It's like, I've no. Known Catholics that do the tea, tea leaf reading thing, man. It's insane. Yeah. 
Um, like, no, <clears throat> it's not prophecy. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And uh, <clears throat> what would you say to someone that said, well, how do we know it's not prophecy? Because didn't God speak to Samuel? Mm-hmm. It was the same thing. He's like, I heard a voice and I came and responded. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the same thing? No. And I think <laughs> one one thing is, um, again, I'm, I'm going to quote O. Palmer Robertson here because he says it better than I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look at what is the point of Revelation. Ah. And he says the end goal of Revelation is not the perpetual experience of Revelation itself. Revelation instead is a means to an end, mm. the making known to men of the one and only God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Amen. So that's how you test prophecy is yep. what is the point, what is the end goal of this, of what is being told to me right now? If yeah. that's the, the end goal, then you're probably in the realm of biblical prophecy. If right. it's not, then you're not. So I guess that would be the same test that we would hold that up against what was Joan of Arc doing. Yeah. I I don't I don't see it. Yeah. Um, because what her prophecies, supposed prophecies, had to do with were um, personal political gain. Exactly. So it had to pro do quo. right. Had to do with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, that might be a little bit too topical. Yeah. Yeah. But that's all right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, driving the English out of France. What does that have to do with making known to men the one and only God in Jesus Christ, whom He has sent? Right. Not a thing. Absolutely not. So held up against that test. I'm sorry. I don't, and that's the other thing is we could speculate about, well, what was going on with her? Right. Is this, um, she's a topic of a great study right. for people within the psychological uh, right. world. Is it mental illness? Yeah. Is it demonic oppression? Is it some combination of the two? I don't know. And I'm not qualified to answer that question, but I, I would speculate. You. Yes. Right. She probably had some kind of mental disorder, but even if she did, people have thought maybe she had epilepsy. Mm. Right now, I don't think it fits. I don't right. think the description of when you look at that specific form of epilepsy, I don't think it fits. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think there was something there. And if she were epileptic, maybe it was a very rare case of epilepsy. Bible, the Bible tells us that when Jesus healed a boy that had epilepsy, he just specifically called it out as a demon. Mm. That's what it was. Right. And so when we look at and again, there's a, there's a line here as to how we view Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And I think you guys have probably picked up on it. <laughs> in the Roman Catholic Church, she is absolutely a hero mm-hmm. of the faith. Right. And in the Protestant world, not so much. No, definitely not. Not so much. Um, I think there's another really important point of application based on what we talked about. And this goes back to that <clears throat> one um, exchange that we talked about from her heresy trial. Yeah. Where they asked her... Um, do you know that you are in a state mm, of grace? Right. Well, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach about that? And this is a document that came, um, I guess, roughly 100 years after Joan of Arc, but it's yeah. still the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church today, and encapsulates, I think, what they would have taught at the time. This is where we were deemed heretics. Right. The Protestant faith was absolutely condemned at the Council of Trent. Right, Council of Trent. And and what they said, and part of that, one of the documents that came out of there was was this. If anyone saith that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless he have learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema. What is anathema? Um, destroyed, basically. Yeah, it's accursed. Right. You are accursed. You are not in the faith. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Council of Trent uh, determined. So automatically, if you know, if you know anything about the Reformation... You should know that disqualifies every Protestant, mm-hmm. which is insane, right? So here's something that I spoke. I speak to 
when we go out and minister, we, we try to share the gospel with folks, we come across all types of people. And one of the persons that we uh, recently encountered was a, or this past year rather, uh, was a Roman Catholic adult who just went through what's called RCIA, which is the Roman Catholic, I'm sorry, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, okay. RCIA. Mm-hmm. It's within the Roman Catholic Church, RCIA classes, and he had just went through it. So mm-hmm. he was very well learned mm-hmm. in the faith and docu- uh, doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And I asked him, I said, look, I want to leave you with one question. If the Pope, who is, again, we've talked about the Vicar of Christ, has said that Protestants are not heretics, they're brothers in Christ who don't need the Roman Catholic Church in order to be saved. And even this cat, that was Pope John Paul II, mm-hmm. who did, who essentially undermined the Council of Trent. Right. And this current Pope has said, you could be an atheist and go to heaven. Why do? Why would I want to have the Roman Catholic faith? I'm like, I don't. I don't want you to answer. I just want you to think about that question. Right. Yeah. And then we left them with the gospel tract, and we 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 departed. But as Protestants, we have a very rich heritage of understanding that uh, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and that if we trust in Him, we can be sure of that salvation because it's all of Him. Mm-hmm. It doesn't depend on us. Right. Never did. Right. Praise God. Absolutely. So that's. I mean, it's basically why the whole book of or the epistle of First John yeah. was written. So that's um, some of the, the scripture citations. And here I'm looking at the um, our confession, the second London Baptist Confession. This is chapter 18. So the whole chapter devoted to the assurance of grace and salvation. And it says, such as truly, this is paragraph one, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. Certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Um, and again, first John chapter two throughout chapter three and uh, probably a uh, very familiar first John five thirteen, where he says the purpose of the whole letter yep. is so that you may know that you are saved. Amen. Um, paragraph two. So they say, yes, you can have assurance of salvation. And we say that too. A paragraph two says, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. So they're saying it's not, like you said before, it doesn't have anything to do with what I know yeah. and what I have. Uh, I'm not resting in myself. It says but it is based on an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. So that's why another reason that I think what we've talked about with Joan of Arc is significant for us because yeah. they're setting up a trap for her. Oh, yeah. Like either you can, if you say that you know, <clears throat> then you're committing heresy. Right. If you say that you're not, then everything, all the all those supposed prophecies that you heard about are invalid. Yeah. They would be blasphemous. Yeah, absolutely. And will execute you for that. Yeah. So it's just incredible that she was able to sidestep that question, not it having is. even being able to read. But we can give a definitive answer on that question is, Yes, we can know that we are in a state of grace and, you know, praise God for that, that we can have that assurance and know that because of Christ, um, those who are in Christ will persevere to the end and don't have to worry about falling out of a state of grace. There was actually something that this reminded me of because in scripture we have someone who was possessed of a demon and they were able to speak true things. Mm-hmm. And, and so what do we do with that? So, because if you study Joan of Arc, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, it is kind of impressive. There's a couple of things that happen in her life. It's like, wow, that's amazing. That almost seems like a sign or a wonder. But we see in, um, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, where 
God tells him, don't let, if somebody, I'm sorry, I think it's Deuteronomy, not Exodus. Mm-hmm. When Deuteronomy says, look, if somebody tells you something, but then it wasn't, it, it tells you to go after a different God, that's not true. Even if right. they perform some signs and wonders. Right. So we have to be very careful. It's applicable to us today because there will come, as God has told us in his revealed word, there will come false prophets who will probably work signs and wonders. But if they tell you to go after a different God, don't go. Right. They are they are false teachers, and they're going to lead you straight into the pits of hell. And uh, I believe it is in Philippi. I'm trying to find it, and I'm not going to be able to because this, this is frustrating. <laughs> but anyhow, they go they go into Philippi. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas. Mm-hmm. And as they're going, oh, you know what it is? I think I don't think it is Paul. I think it's uh, John and Peter. No, it has to be Paul. I'm pretty sure it's in <laughs> Philippi. Mm-hmm. I'm very certain it's in Philippi. And they're going and, and they're they're trying to preach the gospel. Yep, here it is. Acts chapter 16, verse starting in verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, mm-hmm. met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now look at that. Mm. Was she saying something false? No, no, it was true. And was it by her own power? No, it was a supernatural thing from mm-hmm. a, from a, a spirit of divination. And they cast that spirit out. She did this for multiple days. And Paul was greatly annoyed. He turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. Mm-hmm. So just because there are some spectacular things that Joan may have done, just because some teacher may claim to do spectacular things like make people's legs grow longer that does not mean and it's false by the way it's a charlatan act it is not true if you want any further information on that look up justin peters he does a phenomenal job of breaking down all of these people who claim to do signs and wonders today but that doesn't mean that they're true Mm -hmm. see we have to test everything against scripture and if we're not testing it against scripture we're falling right back into the same pattern of the roman catholic church that was abusive and wrong in the in the middle ages we are we are brothers and sisters we are not ignorant we have god's word if you're listening and you're in the united states you have the bible accessible on your phone mm-hmm. any electronic device go into most quote-unquote christian homes i guarantee you there's at least one bible there yeah the gideons still pass out bibles go into a hotel room they're still for right now right still present there so there's no excuse for this brothers and sisters we got to be testing the 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 spirits with the word of god every single day amen so final verdict on Joan of Arc. Heretic. Yeah. Sadly so. Sorry, my Catholic brothers. Very sincere, it. but sincerely wrong. Yes. And do some more research. I promise you, again, like I said, you're going to find some remarkable things, but that does not mean she was, quote unquote, a saint. Right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Thanks again for listening. You can follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Download us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcast as well. Google Google Play Store, um, Spotify. We just got up on that. Oh, sweet. So that's available as well. Um, but we, we're so grateful to all of you who listen. Um, it makes it... Uh, I think we'd probably do this anyway. Yeah. And it's always it's encouraging fun. to see that, that people are actually uh, listening and hopefully getting something out of it. So um, thanks again for, for listening. And until next time. God bless.